FR BostonFreeRadio.com Welcome back. It's Guillermo Hamlet at the top of the hour. My guest today is Dr. Joy Rankin. Uh, Dr. Joy is a contributing editor uh, for Lady Science. She's consulted on documentaries such as The Birth of Basic and The Queen of Code. Um, she got her doctorate in history from Yale, and she's here to talk to us today about her new book, A People's History of Computing in the United States. Uh, Dr. Joy, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, thank you, Guillermo, for having me. I'm really um, excited to speak with you about my book and my work. What made you decide to tackle the back end of the history of computing in the United States? Usually when people think of computing, academic or personal, they think of the tech sector. They think of Silicon Valley uh, hippies and dudes. We think of just people looking for unadulterated free speech in the corners of what used to be military innovation passed through through, uh, academic computing, and then now it's proliferated for personal use. Uh, But ultimately what I know is, was that always the case? So it it wasn't always the case. And um, here, actually, to sort of talk about how I ended up writing my book, I think my personal experience is relevant. I worked for almost a decade launching programs that had to do with education and technology before I did my doctorate. So I had this 10 years of experience working with students and teachers most often who would be um, using things like uh, proprietary voice over internet technology developed in the late 90s to learn English as a second language online. Something like that. And we'd be rolling out these technologies. um, And I I should say I wasn't working in Silicon Valley. Actually, I was working in places like Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Boston, Massachusetts, and um, North Carolina. So in these non-Silicon Valley places, seeing users, or what we would call users, work with new technologies and seeing that they were always creative with them and did things that were imaginative and unexpected. And that certainly we, as the people who were sort of giving them, we thought giving them the technology to use for learning or for other purposes, um, these users would always sort of often would create new social, creative, or fun ways to use the technology. So I had this sort of this experience thinking about technology and education and how users weren't always just users, but doing more than that when I started um, doing my graduate work. And I focused in the history of science and technology, and when it came time to think about research leading to a book, I was also drawn to the history of computing specifically in technology because I had taught myself how to code, I had been a math major, and I had this experience working with technology. 
So I thought in reading for my exams, we had to read extensively many, many books about the history of computing or, you know, history of now we would say social media and networking and all of these things. And many of the stories focused on, you know, how you described this at the opening, like Silicon Valley and the military, the military industrial complex, and a lot of men and machines like ENIAC, which was a World War II era computer, or IBM computers. Um, and then, of course, the like early personal computers of the 70s and 80s. And I was reading all this and saying, wait, wait, <laughs> I know from my experience that there's probably more to this story. Where is the diversity in this story? Where can we see people who aren't just um, homebrew hobbyist dudes or, you know, military cold warriors doing computing? Um, and so I had done uh, my undergraduate work at Dartmouth College, which had a very, I knew a very rich computing history. And that was a place for me to start thinking about, like, what would it look like if we wrote a history of technology and computing and networking, um, as I say, from the user up. So looking at what people are actually doing when they have their hands on technology rather than sort of what the received wisdom and stories that have been handed down are. One thing that I greatly appreciate about doing some research, um, trying to read as much as I can on the subject, was the history of Dartmouth University as this place that really brought in and, and broadened academic computing uh, as a result of Dartmouth's Computation Center. And one thing that really uh, opened my eyes to the access available was the idea that women, uh, you, you may correct me at any point, so it was my understanding that women weren't even really admitted to Dartmouth till 1970 in terms of students reaping the benefit of that education and the prestige. But prior to that, when the computation center was formed, and you know, uh, my listeners are thinking, "What's the computation center? How is this relevant?" I'm confident that you'd be able to fill in the gaps. But one thing that really blew my mind was that for this uh, innovative uh, computation center at Dartmouth College, was it the case that the support staff for this were women? So it was only accessible for use for white males, but you had, at that time in the 60s, in regards to professional computing, women as application programmers, as operators, librarians, as well as computing coordinators themselves, not to even mention the, you know, the, the, the front reception and everything else. The stuff that makes it so were done by women, and I think that that's a fascinating thing that should get touched on. Can you expand more on that? Because I, I yeah. would love to hear more on that. <laughs> I could talk for probably hours on this, um, so I'll, I'll tackle it in two ways, and please help me remember if I forget the second one um, to remind me. So um, I can think about sort of explaining Dartmouth in particular and Dartmouth's role in computing, and then also the much longer history of women in computing. Um, so first, let me say um, Dartmouth is... As you mentioned, it's a it's an elite undergraduate institution. It's um, an Ivy League, which was originally organized around football, nothing else. Right, like the Ivy League is a football association, and football is huge at Dartmouth in the 1960s. And at the time, 
um, the college. So in the 1960s, when the computation center is um, established or built, um, Dartmouth admits only men as undergraduates. It becomes coeducational during the 1970s. Um, but there, so there are sort of two sides to this. Um, John Kemeny and Thomas Kurtz are two math professors who have had exposure to computing in their own sort of lives and educations. Kemeny actually worked um, at, on the Manhattan Project to build an atomic bomb at Los Alamos and had exposure to computing during World War II. Um, and Kurtz also regularly had access to computing as a graduate student at Princeton. And they were firm in their belief that their students at the college should be able to compute. Um, they did sort of a small experiment where they had a small computer and some students got to work with it and they were thrilled with the results. And ultimately they pitched a um, project to the trustees in the college to say, um, and I'm summarizing here, but we need to build a campus-wide computing network and have as many students as possible learn how to program computers. And to do this, we're going to um, create a very user-friendly, easy-to-learn programming language, which is called BASIC, um, Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code. And we're going to use something called time-sharing, which is like a network of things that were like typewriters with printers built in, um, connected by phone lines to mainframe computers. And so students could sit and type um, and then receive results. Like they could play football interactively by computer on their teletypewriters because they would type in um, commands to the computer and the computer in turn could uh, instruct the teletypewriter to print out results right on sort of right on paper in front of them that they could see. Um, but as you pointed out, so at a time when um, it's only undergraduate men who start using this network, which becomes hugely popular at the college, it is women who are working at the computation center doing a lot of key roles like um, managing the software library and developing new applications or new software for faculty and students, or even ultimately managing what was what became known as user services. So uh, there are many women um, working at Dartmouth behind the scenes on this network that initially um, at the college is accessible only to, or, and I shouldn't say accessible only to the male undergraduates, but the undergrads, the students who it's primarily for are at the time all young men. Um, however, very quickly, um, Kemeny and Kurtz pushed to have the network opened to high schools and other colleges and universities around New England. So it doesn't just become a local um, Dartmouth thing, but rather a New England-wide network. And what happens then is that um, girls and young women who are at public high schools around New England and colleges like um, Mount Holyoke, which are women only, those girls and women also gain access to computing, um, just not at nearly the sort of rate or level of access that 
boys and men on the network have. For instance, all of the private schools that Dartmouth initially connects to in the in the network are um, for boys only. And the boys at these private schools receive nearly double the networking time than boys or girls at public schools. So there is this there's this push by Kemeny and Kurtz and others at Dartmouth to expand their network. And I think in, they're thinking in an ideal world, make it publicly accessible and broadly accessible, but the gender dynamics and norms of the time mean that it is still predominantly, sort of firstly and predominantly used by boys and men um, to the largest extent. And I should say, Kemeny goes on to become president of the college. He's actually the president who pushes for co-education and, and recognizes the, the need to open the college to women as well. He also is, makes a big push for diversifying the campus in terms of admitting Native American students, black students, um, and so on. But it's, and I talk about this in my book, it's inescapable that the fact that the network was born into this very privileged white male homogenous culture shaped its trajectory. So that's one side of it. The other thing I wanted to say though about the women working behind the scenes at the computation center is every time I say, and, and this happens frequently, like, ah, those women were not the exception. Rather, there were many, many women working in professional computing roles in the United States during the 1960s, and in fact, had been for decades. So the word computer initially referred to people, to humans who were doing mathematical or arithmetic computations as part of sort of a larger problem-solving effort. And those human computers were most often women. And so these computing women, these human computers, um, worked in the United States from the latter half of the 19th century through the World War II era um, and continued doing various roles related to programming um, and computing and sort of all of the support we would imagine, whether it's running mainframes as mainframe operators or actually writing programs um, and many things in between. Up until, um, I would say, I would argue the present day, it's just that the narrative of Silicon Valley and sort of computing being um, male-dominated is so powerful in today's culture and still in the media that we sort of keep erasing the fact that there have always been women computing. In fact, the original computers were women. So that's a very long answer to, um, but it's a complicated, it's a complicated topic to get into gender and computing. And also very appreciated given everything that's not known about it. Uh, go, adding to what you stated earlier, in doing my research, it, it, is it the case that in your book, in these networks that were basically the best way to envision is imagine if there were lanes that were only connected to private schools and these private schools were 
just by custom, but even just by years and years of reinforcement, predominantly white, predominantly male. Uh, moreover, it seemed that everything that I've read about this and, and reinforced by your research, that this teletype access would be more or less available for about 72 hours per week. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that on average they did so. It means that they were privileged enough to get 72 hours of access to this uh, teletype access, while public school students, it was 40 hours a week. And mind you, when you think 72 hours a week or 40 hours a week, predominantly white males. So there were public white male, public school white males that would have access for only 40 hours a week with private school getting an additional 32 hours a week. Is that correct? That is correct. And that's specifically those numbers come from there was a multi-year grant where um, Dartmouth College was sort of working with these other, um, about 20 other high schools around New England, a mix of public and private um, to, it was a National Science Foundation grant to sort of think about how to effectively use computing in the curriculum. And so for a historian like me, this is like all the grant reports um, and newsletters are a great source of information about what the kids are actually doing when they have access to like their computing during 40 hours a week or 72 hours a week. But so the grant reports that for this multi-year period, um, that the public schools are only providing 40 hours of access a week and the private schools are providing 72 hours a week. And my sense reading these reports is that that time is maximized. Like, in fact, the students would want even more time if they could. And the constraint on timing is, of course, partially like when are the schools open? When is there an adult to, like, be around supervising but also um, a constraint around cost because the way that these individual terminals are connected to the mainframe computers uh, is by phone lines. And so they have to arrange um, the cost of, which now we don't even think about, we don't bat an eyelash thinking about long distance phone charges or local versus long distance, but paying for the cost of telephone connectivity during the 1960s could be quite a significant cost for some of these participating schools. So if you don't mind, don't worry, we will return to uh, people's history of computing uh, because all of this is fascinating to me. Here on the Guaucast, we're a cyberspace podcast, so we eat this stuff up whenever we're not listening to hip-hop uh, tunes curated by yours truly. I would like to talk about something that's a little less, I mean, I, I don't know how to say it's like, that was depressing, but let's go into something even more depressing. Recently, you wrote in an essay uh, yes. entitled, Why I Am Firing Michigan State, Sexual Harassment, Online Harassment, and Utter Institutional Failure. Now, when we hear that, we're thinking, oof. The second thing we're thinking, or probably primarily is, Firing Michigan State. I I, I read this essay uh, initially when I was reaching out to you to join the show, and then you sent me the essay and I read it and I absorbed it. One thing that I greatly appreciate about the approach of this essay is that it's it's very uncommon in the way that you wrote it. Rather than allowing uh, the events to reach critical mass of just complete bureaucratic shit show, what I took from it is the fact that you were very proactive in making sure that you nipped it in the bud 
beyond any, well, not necessarily nip it in the bud, but you try to cease it before it could really exponentially get worse. Uh, could you delve into why this essay was written and why you think that it was critical to get something like this out, especially for those who are considering either attending, uh, working, or those already belonging to Michigan State? <laughs> That's a big question. So um, let me start by saying I was writing it first and foremost uh, from my position as a woman academic um, and being a woman in academia in a tenure track position means often being in the minority in what is still um, in terms of power and who gets tenure still very much a white male world and um, that's slowly changing but not fast enough um, and so I write about how I was sexually harassed at Michigan State starting basically the first month that I was there as a professor um, for teaching and research. And what ultimately, part of what ultimately propelled me to write this essay is that as I started telling my colleagues outside of Michigan State that I was being sexually harassed, and I should say the harassment was so egregious and so obvious, and I'm also someone who has been trained in and studied and aware of um, gender norms and how sexual harassment is about power and displays of power and these kinds of things. As I told my colleagues outside of Michigan State that this was happening, what shocked me was that almost to a person, every woman colleague I told said, oh, this has also happened to me. I mean, this was very much a, a me too um, experience as I was telling women colleagues about this harassment and they would say, this happened to me in grad school or let me tell you about what happened to me when I was on the job market or I'm dealing with this right now. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is an epidemic in academia and, and, all to, and, and epidemic, as we've seen over the past two years, an epidemic around the United States and around the world. Um, but because of the, the way colleges and universities are organized to sort of protect power, if you think about the levels of sort of um, any educational system, the students are always more vulnerable than their teachers and their teachers report to administrators and so on and so on. There are many layers to those power relationships. And I thought um, someone had to come out and say, this is exactly what my experience was at Michigan State, but also I know this isn't just my experience. You could change names and change details, and it would be the experience of thousands of other women around the world. Um, and the other piece, too, was that um, I do research on gender and race and technology. Um, and as I detail in my essay, I was um, very publicly criticized. Other people use the word harassment and attack 
um, for my research, for a talk that I gave about some of my research that's in my book about gender and the Plato computing system. Um, I was very publicly, like I said, criticized about that work and in a way that my colleagues described as harassment and personal attacks. Um, and then after I had reported sexual harassment twice at Michigan State, Michigan State in turn um, claimed that I was misconducting my research based on that online harassment, which again, to most of my colleagues seemed utterly egregious and a way of retaliating against me because I had spoken up against the sexual harassment. Um, and it was one thing after another where I felt like I just felt very strongly the need to, as you said, be proactive and try to do the right thing, try to speak up for myself and stop sexual harassment, speak up against the online harassment and so on in Michigan State institutionally, just continued to try to undermine um, me and thwart my career, it seems. Um, so I wrote this essay, and I know that for many people, many people have shared with me in the aftermath that they've also experienced similar situations, um, not just of sexual harassment or online harassment or online attacks for their research, um, but even institutional retaliation in the form of these misconduct allegations and inquiries, which are devastating for um, any kind of researcher uh, to have to deal with. Even the allegation of it is is utterly brutal. Um, and it makes me wonder if that's a more common way than we even realize of trying to silence people who speak up um, in Michigan State in particular, it, to me, this was doubly devastating because Michigan State has been in the national news um, for the past few years because of the Larry Nasser sexual abuse scandal, um, how he, this uh, trusted gymnastics coach and doctor um, abused hundreds of girls and women and how Michigan State, it, as we have learned and it continues to be reported day by day, um, protected Nasser and tried to cover it up and even now are still getting in the way of the investigation. So institutionally, it just um, seems like there is not an interest in doing anything except protecting the institution and those who are at the highest levels of power in it rather than um, those who are more vulnerable, like students or uh, junior faculty. I, I think, well, first of all, I, I commend you for being so brave, because I do agree that I, I remember when I was in doing my undergraduate experience, Stephen Payne used to talk about, uh, you know, wrote an essay on dangerous ideas. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, there was a paper, Best Practices for Conducting Risky Research and Protecting Yourself from Online Harassment. As you stated earlier, that um, the authors make it very clear that false or misrepresented or private information propagated by harassers may neg negatively impact the research reputation and or career. Um, and so the reason why I find this to be crucial 
to the discussion is because in many ways, um, academics are now subject to their online curation. And in many ways, there are attempts to really sync academics. The same way uh, online, you have uh, people trying to swat uh, Congresswoman Catherine Clark in Massachusetts over trying to uh, reform swatting legislation. So is the online, is, is the internet always shitty? And in, and in many ways, is it, is it kind of expected at this point for uh, those who are doing research of critical importance to expect harassment, which is unfortunate? Not, I, I know I feel like I'm academically shaming people. Like, well, that's what you get for trying to get dangerous ideas. But in many ways, I'm thinking, are these attempts to discredit because they're invested in uh, the social order or the uh, willful ignorance of what is being discussed? And in, in, in many ways, do are we now like subject to the academic opinions of people on Twitch, Reddit, or what have you? Yeah, I think... Um... In some ways now, it's, a, it's an, at least among those who do risky research. And what risky research is, is like wide open to interpretation because it seems like something that could be perhaps not at all controversial if it gets in front of the wrong set of eyes. And by wrong set of eyes, I mean someone who takes offense at another academic's research that with the, the great power of social media um, and Twitter and message boards, et cetera, et cetera, right? This great power of the internet that there is the power for one person to really um, damage and devastate another person's life and career. I mean, not just in academia, right? We see this sort of among sort of ordinary citizens. Um, And so I think it's really incumbent upon and this is part of why I think Michigan State utterly failed, is it's really incumbent upon universities to understand the ways in which anyone who does research that could be somehow controversial is also therefore vulnerable. Um, Especially because, and, you know, I'll say in my case, like, I have made it a point of wanting to share my research, right? I gave a talk at Google, I'm a contributing editor for Lady Science, which is very much, um, you know, we're a free online publication that is aimed for a broad readership, not just for academics. Um, That in putting myself and my work out there, that, yeah, I understand people, some people aren't going to like what I have to say. Some people aren't going to like the fact that I say there is a Silicon Valley mythology and we need to not just talk about, you know, white dude technology or pale male technology all the time. I understand that's going to be unpopular, but I also think it's important research. Um, And I would expect my institution to back me up on that rather than supporting the people who are trying to silence me. Um, And so... I would, for anyone who is an academic who is listening, both say, like, if you think your research might be risky, um, you know, take steps to sort of be aware of what might happen, but also to, like, 
institutions have a responsibility, and by institutions I mean other academics and administrators, understand that um, academics who are public in their work can be very easily be targets of these harassment campaigns and how damaging they are. Um, even just in terms of sort of time and mental and emotional health to deal with sort of an individual or a group of people basically trying to like criticize um, and criticize is like a gentle word here, but really try to like destroy one's research. Well, I find I, I... I greatly appreciate everything you touched on there because it, it, it is harassment. It is in many ways like a censorship of a different sort. It's like mob rule to reinforce what already is. Now, I know some people online may disagree with me on that. They think that I'm feeding into a uh, very feminist uh, ideology. Uh, the thing is, I feel as though like reality has kind of a feminist bent in the way that if you really were to look at the way that we operate, things that have only been accessible and inclusive now, have only really just now gained critical mass where inclusion is the norm and it looks like oppression to those who had previously benefited back when they would deliberately exclude people of color and women from enrollment in institutions such as Dartmouth at competitive uh, job opportunities, access to, to, to technology, which could allow you to basically print out giant text messages back in the 70s. So it's, it's these little things that really kind of confuse uh, a great, that kind of obfuscate uh, what is really the case. Yeah, and I, I would chime in to agree, agree with that, and I'll, I think I'll make another book recommendation here. Um, I just finished a few weeks ago the book um, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny by Kate Mann, um, and she in the book, which is great, um, but she basically says that, of course, right now there are, um, many, many white men or affluent white men who, who might feel some sense of loss because there are more opportunities for women. There are more opportunities for non-binary folks. There are more opportunities for black people or, immigrants and the list goes on but but they're feeling a loss of something that was never fair or even morally right to begin with because their benefits and their privileges and their power were resting on depriving so many other people of access and rights and privileges and power and even agents sort of individual agency and choice so um, I agree with what you said completely that as now sort of we're moving to have inclusivity become the norm or sort of more accessibility, more opportunity that there are people who are feeling losses, but they're not legitimate losses in the sense that a lot of what those people had to begin with weren't necessarily, um, fair or just it's it's one of the most frustrating things about um the way that the political pendulum informs these reactionary groups and now where we're in the cultural uh 
we have online speech really exponentially propagating falsehoods, uh, reinforcing uh, basically the memes of a lot of online spaces. I know when I was in college, uh, even though like a great many number of us identified as feminists, we would innately hold these views, which are, are the only real sufficient way to describe it is misogynistic. You 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 basically are willing to diminish someone's point. You belittle them, not even accounting for the fact that the built environments, the tradition, the the years and years of uh, reinforcement and conditioning that are suitable and favorable to male traits are now suddenly have to really adopt, accommodate, no, accommodate. Uh, it really had to really, it really had to remix itself, reconfigure itself to the citizenry, the body, those enrolled, which is much more inclusive, much more diverse. And it may seem like a loss of something, but in many ways, it's just innovation. Because as you stated, back in the 60s and 70s, we had people who had the skill set, but the skill set was overlooked because of uh, social roles, social roles that are now being lamented for its loss due to the great many number of, uh, of just broader female identities, uh, job roles and tracks. And there are inroads being made and gains made. But for a great many number of people, I don't know whether if it if it's an intergenerational thing, if younger younger men are oblivious to the idea that like women were monitored, uh, they were excluded, and the only thing they can see from their vantage point is their uh, own sensations and formulations, rationalizations reinforced by misogynistic internet. Um, what would you? How would you uh, begin a conversation with uh, an adolescent male who is? all but convinced that the internet is correct in its assessment that uh, there is a there is a out of control third wave feminism that is only looking to behead uh, males figuratively uh, literally th th they're making it sound like uh, there is no lasting uh, cohesion between us rather it's like a war of the sexes that is all but certain and that there needs to be a retaliation towards the recent inroads made by women. Otherwise, all male inclusion and access will be lost. Hmm. I know. I know oh, right? That's <laughs> like a tough question. Okay, well, so if, if I, you know, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of maybe goodwill or time here, but my my immediate response is to say I would start that conversation by talking about history um, and how many tens and hundreds of years it's taken for at least women, even in the United States, to do something like gain the right to vote um, and have a political voice, right? And women gaining the right to vote isn't about taking it away from men. It's about enabling them to be citizens expressing political will. Um, or how many years it took then for women to have their own bank accounts, which is right not like let's take bank accounts away from men. And that, sort of I'm talking here in very simple, tangible examples, but to show that the long sweep of history towards, uh, and you know, here I'm focusing on women, we could do the same for black people and looking back at slavery and change over time and sort of what it means um, 
for people to gain these rights and have social norms change, but also to point to how many benefits accrue in a society that is um, more equal and that economies do better when women are more employed and have more job opportunities. Like it makes things better for everyone, not just the women. Um, and uh, how education of girls and women helps not just girls and women, but also boys and men. Um, and how sort of time and again, as we see more people gaining rights, gaining access, gaining the ability to be in jobs, to be considered, to be in positions of leadership and power that um, it is generally a better situation for everyone involved. Um, but as I'm listening to myself give this answer, I would say like deep in my heart, I'm an inherently like optimistic person, but I know there is a lot of hate and fear <laughs> on the internet and fueled by the internet. Um, and so I don't know if this sort of history lesson or, or even data about, you know, economic statistics and success would reach, a, would reach him. Um, that's something that I think a lot of us think about right now. I, I agree. It's, it's, it's always weird to really talk about this because there's so much that we don't know and there's so much uh, distributed that is nonsense and it's really hard to really like undo nonsense when it's even hard to even preface nonsense. Uh, I, I want to delve into something a little bit peculiar. I, I'm a big fan of this phenomenon that took place, I believe it was in the 90s. It was, uh, it's called the Sokol Affair. I, I known, I was aware of it as called the Sokol Hoax. And it's, mm -hmm. I, I've always wanted to talk about it with somebody. And I feel like there's nobody else better than you to talk about the article transgressing the boundaries towards the transformative hermeneutics of quantum gravity. Now, people will be like, what in the hell did he just say? Well, this is a hoax that sparked a debate, whether or not there was scholarly merit when it comes to the physical sciences, meaning um, hard empiricism, scientific work being chimed in on by people in the humanities and whether or not there's any uh, overtures, intersectional, uh, um, I, I don't think it's a term, uh, what's it called? Uh, sorry. Whether or not there were any interdisciplinary benefit to doing so. Now, this hoax is amazing because it was later revealed that it wasn't a hoax. And later on, uh, more recently, there have been instances where they did some form of a hoax similar to this, but I believe instead of just a single journal entry, they did a few. Sokol, I am aware of the, the Sokol affair, the Sokol hoax, and more recently, like even just this year, or, and not this year anymore, now 2018, like uh, there was like a grievance studies hoax. Um, and so here I have to step back to put on my like historian hat and say that in the 90s when the so so Alan, I think it was Alan Sokol, is physicist who basically decided to like write an article and to submit it to a humanities journal and 
she basically was like, this essay was nonsense. I just like threw in a bunch of words and like tried to flatter the editors and see if it would get published. Um, and apparently, if I'm remembering correctly, like the essay was not, the journal didn't do peer review at the time. The essay wasn't sent to outside reviewers. Um, and the essay got published and so on. And as you said, like, and again, so this is set in the time of the science wars, which I will explain in a minute, or actually I'll explain right now, the science wars would be this idea that like anyone in the humanities, whether sociology or English or history, like those people had no right, so said the scientists, to comment on how science was done. Um, because it was like a thing apart and it was quote objective and rational and sort of empirically pure. And I want to put air quotes around all of those <laughs> because those are words that for like non-scientists often seem to be like saying like, just believe what I say and don't look too closely at what's going on, like in my black box. Um, whereas for people like me who are historians or people who study um, language or sociologists, those are like, ooh, let's talk a little bit more about what's happening when you claim objectivity and not like everything you're doing is like um, perfectly uh, defensible. And so the science wars, which I think still are clearly happening today to a lesser extent, maybe now it's the science and technology wars. Um, on one side are people saying, people like me, um, humanists, social scientists saying, science is done by people. Like scientists are people, people live in a social world and science is a social process by which I mean, and others mean that like when you have a group of people agreeing on how to do their work and what are the norms or sort of expectations around who does what work and how do we assign credit and how do we decide to distribute resources and what kind of rewards are there and even what kinds of things should we investigate. Those are all like very human, very social decisions that are open to scholarly study and criticism and by criticism I don't mean in the sense of like oh that's bad but rather like oh why might we want to like look at the relationship between the cold war and you know how science education was funded in the United States sort of those kinds of questions and criticism um, and on the other side of the science wars are people who are like, no, no, science is pure. It doesn't matter that scientists are people because like science is like its own separate thing that has nothing to do with like human ideas and thoughts and cultures and societies. Um, so now I would say fast forwarding from the nineties to 2019, there are still I would say reactionary elements in um, academia or the sciences who are really pushing back against all of the increasingly loud and present voices who are feminist or anti-racist or calling for more diversity in a variety of fields or sort of calling to broaden histories. Um, and on one side, you might have people who are saying like, oh, we should be writing more about gender and science. And on the other side are people who are saying like, 
no, that's, you know, that's bullshit. That's not real academic work because science is like this uncorruptible thing. Um, and that there's no place for any sort of humanist or social scientist critique of or examination or consideration of something like artificial intelligence um, or physics or even maybe biology. So does that, I could keep talking about this. This is like a part of the heart of, of doing any sort of science and technology studies is sort of thinking about these issues and how heated people can be about them. I fully understand that because language is the vehicle by which we are expressing these things which have permanence given all the scrutiny that we apply it to. Uh, in regards to um, the, the responses uh, from these hoaxes in publishing journals, um, in a way, I delight in it because I studied philosophy and, and I know what it's like to read really bad writing by really dead old white dudes. And I think that jargon, wherever, however, used is overbearing. It's overbearing because it's poor writing. And I think that you're right. I think that there's a perception of objectivity, of permanence when it comes to the empiricism uh, and methodologies for the sciences, uh, the physical sciences and everything. I, I fully respect and I do align myself more as a empiricist than anything else. However, language dictates the way that we express these objectivities. Um, I, do, at any point during uh, learning about the Sokol hoax or the grievance study affairs, at any point did you consider whether or not these hoax may demonstrate, at least in the um, humanities and maybe in some of the social sciences, that there is this sort of um, skepticism of science and logic? I would say I don't find that there is sort of what the science wars or the hoax or the grievance studies affairs. To me, those things don't reveal that there's like a skepticism of science. Um but rather a, a desire, a sort of a spirit of inquiry and curiosity to say um, what motivates particular scientific or technological work and who's doing it. And given that science and technology certainly have such a prominent place in American and global society today, we need to be asking those questions, right? So for me, it's not, and it, to me, that's not, I would say that's not even activism. Like, that's like this spirit of inquiry to say, like, let's ask questions about who is doing what kind of research or what kind of um, research and development or, you know, whatever. Who's building this kind of robot and why? Who's doing this kind of moonshot, so to speak, and why? Um, and where is funding coming from? And who's on the team? And what if the team looked, had X, Y, and Z other people on it? So those questions aren't activists so much as saying, like, let's understand the world in which we live. And also, importantly, like, the world we're creating. And for me, being a historian is, like, let's look at the past where we can now, you know, see we're 50 years on. Like, how did those things 50 years ago shape our world today and how, how maybe would they give us insight into thinking about what changes we want to make in the world today to um, have it be a better tomorrow. And as I say that, I completely understand and get that there are people who might be like, I'm pretty satisfied 
satisfied with the status quo. I don't want the world to change. Um, and I guess for those people, like, then they might see my work as activist. However, I think the world can change in different ways. And so I'm going to keep doing the work that I do that I think is um, important scholarly inquiry. Awesome. So um, a completely different line of questioning, a completely different uh, sphere of inquiry. Uh, do you have any favorite memes? Do you, are you, are you partial to memes? Um, I am not partial to memes. For someone who, who studies and spends a lot of time thinking about technology and like social networks and the history of com like computing, um, I don't spend a ton of time sort of surfing the internet. Uh, I'm pretty disciplined, I think, in my um, use of it. And in some ways pretty limited in my use of it just because I find that makes me like a happier and more productive person. Fair enough. <laughs> So, um, so for for everyone, um, for every one of my listeners that want to get in touch with you, in addition to joyrankin.com, where can my listeners uh, reach out to you or uh, get to learn more about your work? Ah, so on joyrankin.com, there is a, a contact form, um, and I get those messages directly, and I will answer them so they can reach me there. But also, you know, please buy my book, uh, A People's History of Competing in the United States, or like ask for it at your library. Um, right now, I think it's right around $20 or less on Amazon, um, and that's for the hardcover. So not a bad price, but also I write regularly for Lady Science, um, which is ladyscience.com. Um, I also edit for them and have... Uh, we have a podcast as well. Um, those are probably the two best ways. And then I'll be updating my website too as I sort of have more book talks and things. Oh, and right, I, as you mentioned, I have a Google Talk. It's a great way to sort of hear me um, explain a little bit more about my research and my book. Um, and the Dartmouth example is for those people who are interested in the Dartmouth example uh, as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, Dr. Joy Rankin, uh, thank you so much for joining my show. Uh, you are welcome anytime uh, now that we know how to get in touch with each other. This episode was recorded at Boston Free Radio at the Somerville Media Center at Union Square. If you'd like to hear the hip-hop music that we're playing on our program, tune in on Boston Free Radio, Saturdays from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. You can listen to the music live on Boston Free Radio. If you are unable to do so, don't fret. We have our Spotify playlist shown early on our Patreon. Patreon.com slash GSHamlin for your Guaucast needs. Come on in and check out our Patreon.